0: Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk.
1: Today's Bible reading is John 1 verse 19 to 34. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, Then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who have been sent to question him, why then do you baptise if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptise with water, John replied, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is one who comes after me. The straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptising.
0: And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptise with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptise with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. Hi, everybody. It's great to see you. My name is Howard. I'm the pastor here at Westminster Chapel and everyone is welcome in our church family. Um, I don't know how many of you this morning are feeling exhausted because you stayed up late last night watching the Eurovision Song Contest, or particularly the results. Um, no one wants to own up to that fact. Um, far too busy. Or you're very disappointed because your team did not win um, the FA Cup final. We um, are in the right place to find relief recovery in a far more significant and supernatural uh, way. Um, we are in a series, it's called Amazing Love, it's based on John's gospel, John's first century biography about the person of Jesus. We began it last week and the theme that we picked up from that was this theme of friendship, being invited into a relationship with God, that God can be known. He actually has revealed himself. You can know him but also you can be known by God yourself. It's an invitation to intimacy, to closeness with God So I thought I would ask you this question that you could reflect on about your day or maybe the last week. And it's simply this. Where has your head been? Or where is your head? (laughs) Has it been a headless chicken week for you? Um, where your head has been figuratively off your body <laughs> and you've been running around crazily, just not really being able to stop, to actually think or pause or be with God. Headless chicken, you know, option number one. Option number two, has your head been in the cloud, sort of in fantasy, unreality world, dreamy thinking, um, not really engaging with what's before you, a bit sort of distant and, and just not really with it. That's option number two. Option number three would be, has your head been in your hands this week? Frustration, disappointment, that's really the position that kind of describes where you're you're really at in life. The call of this series and of John's Gospel is, as we heard last week, to put your head on Jesus' chest and to keep coming back to make sure that your head figuratively is in the place it's meant to be as a follower of Jesus. That's the position we're invited into through this gospel. You may have heard me say last week that this gospel that's written by John, um, he uses this anonymous phrase throughout it. He never names himself as the author or names this person, the beloved disciple. The beloved disciple, the disciple that Jesus loved, keeps coming. Why does he do that? So that he invites you to be that person in the story. And we meet this beloved disciple being described again at the Last Supper, where it says that his head is on Jesus' chest. Now, unfortunately, we slightly sanitize the language in the same way that we kind of politically correctify it in John chapter 1, verse 18, where it says that Jesus was in the closest relationship with the Father. Because we don't like the scandalous idea that it actually literally says Jesus was in the bosom of the Father. That's the place where he is eternally resting in the love, sweetness, closeness of being with the Father God. And that is the exact same phrase that John uses of the beloved disciples' connection to Jesus. That his head was in the bosom of Jesus' closeness, intimacy. Hearing God's heart. Wow, that is the privilege, that is the invitation of John's gospel, that we can really know God and be known by him. And the particular focus of this passage then becomes one of identity, which is also one of the themes John is introducing for the whole gospel. How do we know that? Well, because the question that comes very quickly is who are you? It comes to John the Baptist but it's really coming to every one of us and it will also come to Jesus as well because this gospel is about who is Jesus and who are you in light of that? comes not just once but twice in this passage. Who are you? Who are you? There's an interesting story um, about uh, Prime Minister Mori, Japanese Prime Minister, meeting for the first time President Barack Obama. And he's been briefed that when he comes to meet Obama, he needs to shake his hand and say, how are you? Unfortunately, when the moment comes, he of course shakes his hand and says, who are you? (laughs) To arguably one of the most powerful people in the world. (laughs) Um, Awkward moment. What does Obama do? Well, Obama, slightly shocked and surprised, um, steps back uh, and then... um, And then finds a sense of humor and says, "Um, I'm Michelle's husband. (laughs) So I think it's a brilliant answer, Um, which is great. Who are you? How would you answer that question? How would you answer that question? I need to backtrack a little bit for a moment because the story I just told you actually wasn't a real story. Because um, you can go on a, a website called Snopes, a fact-checking website, um, and this is kind of the way these things kind of come out. They're sort of like they develop over time, don't they? There's these sort of urban legends of what happens. And it turns out that President, sorry, Prime Minister Mori wasn't actually in office at the time that that story was said to happen. Very easy to find out Snopes uh, fact checking websites that they'll show you this kind of stuff. Now, why am I doing that? Yes, I wanted a nice humorous story to kind of introduce the theme of identity. I'll own that. But I also wanted to illustrate the, the difference of the kind of material that we're looking at. That if Snopes was around when this gospel was first circulating and they were doing their fact checking work, they would have gone, This is the real deal. This is authentic. We can't prove this thing wrong. It's not made up. It's not fictitious. Some signs that that's the case would be the names that John uses in this gospel. That they're from the first century period in Palestine in this part of the world. That's really interesting because if you were writing 100 years later or 300 years later, it'd be really hard to know what were the most common and popular names at that point at that time in history. John gets that absolutely spot on. The fifth, we now know, has only come out in like the last sort of 10, 15 years. They've done sort of all these archaeological studies of what was the most popular names back then. The fifth most popular male name was John at that time. And that's why John has to differentiate the different types of John. That's why you're here, it's John the Baptist or John the brother of, because it's a really common name, and otherwise you wouldn't know which name you're talking about. You would not know that. I don't know what the most popular name was in France 100 years ago. I don't know. But John did. Factual accuracy. He gets all of the details of geography right. There are 22 stories in this gospel. Every one of them has a geographical place associated with them. He gets every one of those details back. If you go to what we sometimes call these Gnostic Gospels, which were written much later, at least 100 years later than this Gospel, and they claim to be written by sort of famous people from the biblical story like Judas and others like that, but you actually find they've got none of these details. They've got no geographical place names. But John's got all of this detail in there. Verse 28, he's saying this is happening in a place called Bethany. This really interesting detail, by the way, because he's matching that with a, another place called Bethany. And actually, there's different ways to spell this Bethany. Bethany is probably more like a place called Batanea, but you could spell it Bethany. So it's like he's making a deliberate play on the name that this is Bethany, even though there are these two Bethany. There's the Bethany later on in the story where he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead He's going to be baptized with Mary of Bethany's perfume to get him ready for the anointing of his death that's going to come. These are the, the moments. So he's linking these things too deliberately together in the story to give you some idea of what's going on. There's so much, actually, that John is doing in this gospel. But we don't have enough time to get back to that. Let's get back to the question Who are you? How would you answer that question? Well, I'd probably say, like, my name. I'm Howard. Um, Maybe my, I don't know, what I do for a living. It's my job. This is the kinds of stuff that that I am. Um, If you're a good Christian, you'd be saying, I'm a child of God. (laughs) And I would be saying, amen to that. That's brilliant. But it's really interesting that that's not how John the Baptist answers this question. He doesn't begin with saying what he is, but what he's not. That's fascinating, isn't it? Now, we're going to get into that. That'll be the first point just in a, in a moment. But I, I just want to clarify because it can be really confusing about the two different Johns. Um, just if you're here, there is this guy called John the Baptist. He's the second cousin of Jesus. He's not the one writing the gospel. That was Jesus, That was John, rather, one of Jesus' closest followers. But it's significant that there are these two witnesses. that are coming together to testify about who Jesus is. And John's doing that deliberately, the author. He's saying, because historically in Jewish law, you wanted to establish things by at least two witnesses. And here it begins. We've got the testimony of John the Baptist, which is being added to the testimony of John himself, coming together to give a powerful representation of this is who Jesus is. This is what he's like. He is God. So the first of three points that we're going to make this morning is, I am not. I am not. John the Baptist's, first confession and his first answer to the question as to who he was is, I am not the Messiah. I am not the anointed one come to save the world. I wonder if anybody here needs to confess their saviour complex today. Are you a rescuer type? Are you the kind of person that just automatically needs to reach in and help people? Do you have an obsessive need to help people in order to feel good about yourself? You see, it's a very noble thing to sacrificially want to help others, absolutely, even biblical thing, even following the example of Jesus, but when that becomes your identity, when that defines who you are, when you actually end up helping people, it can be more to validate yourself than to actually help them, which means you can become blind to whether you are the person who is really meant to help them. There might be somebody else who's better than you to actually provide the help, but you're not seeing that necessarily, because it's all about you providing that kind of help it can even hinder a person if you're not careful because they may not need that help Your helping may be hurting them it may be creating a sense of codependency where they become reliant on you in an unhealthy way how do i know this because i i do it (laughs) because i'm guilty of this i do this a lot i think we all attempted to do this why because we want to be the hero or the heroine we want to be the star, but so often, like we just, just fail to live up to that. <laughs> we, we discover that we don't have superpowers. I find it really interesting. I think this is a sort of uh, an interesting point of popular culture that the heroes that we used to have out there have now become far and far more fallen and gritty and real and authentic over time. You know, they used to be like, that's the hero that we put up there, and I'm going to be like that hero. But we've really quickly discovered, I can't. So what happens? They come down to our level. Um, whether that's you know, Jason Bourne, whether it's James Bond, whether it's um, Batman, they're sort of more flawed and dark. and sort of uh, you know, they're, they're sort of not the, the perfect, squeaky clean hero that they once were. So we could relate to them more. I'm all we'll still paid to go and watch them rather than just say, it's just irrelevant. How do I connect? I can't place myself into this story anymore. In the Christian context, the challenge comes with the pressure to be Christ like, which is a good thing, but it can be a very wrong thing. When you start to let your sinful nature warp that and you can become so focused on being Christ-like that you are actually trying to be God. You see it in in, in evangelism and sharing your faith where you end up taking all the responsibility for somebody else's journey to faith on yourself. But salvation belongs to the Lord. You can't save anyone You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. It's just outside of your control. I'm sorry. Yes, you've got a role to play and a part to play in that. You do your part, but God does his ultimate part and his part's really the main part. Do you see? But it's on you. You feel the weight, the pressure. Not all of God's attributes are what we would call communicable. There's a sense in which you can never be like God because you can't be omniscient. You can't be all-knowing. You can't be omnipresent. Do you see? You can go on like this. Now there are characteristics which we can share, but the danger is, is if you think you're trying to be God like that, I need to be like God, you're going to feel overwhelmed and crushed and it's the sense of pride. What's really interesting actually is that this may even be classified as the original sin that Adam and Eve were tempted toward. Satan says, then you will be like God. That we're constantly being tempted and tested to try and be God for ourselves rather than let God be God in our lives. I have a pastor friend called Steve Cuss. He puts all of this like this. He says simply this, be human-sized. And oh boy, is it such a relief. (laughs) The sense in which you can just relax and say like I, I, I don't need to be God I can't be God I need to repent of that I just need to be human and even beyond that it's like I need to for me it's I need to be Howard size I need to run the race that is marked out for me not someone else's I can't be this pastor sized or that pastor sized. I've got to be fit for me and the way in to do that way in to discover the sense of release And a sense of our identity is to begin with this confession and just to say as regularly as you can, I am not the Messiah. When stuff starts to happen to you and you feel like, I've got to fix this. Um, Hold on, I'm not the Messiah. (laughs) Is it my place to step in here? Actually, it's God's. Am I stepping in for him? Am I trying to be God? No, I want God to be God first in this situation. The time when this most... Powerfully impacted me was some months ago, and um, I was journaling. I've been studying through John's Gospel for a while, and to get ready for this series, I wanted it to have real life in it. So this was God speaking to me. And if you've been around for a while, you know that my model is is soap, scripture, observation, application, and prayer. So I work through that. I write out a few scriptures, but I just want to read out to you like what what God said to me, what I felt God was saying to me in the moment when I felt a sense of real power when I first encountering this truth of I am not. There is a danger that I, we, may fail to confess. We keep silent. We give a false impression. We conceal the truth, living as if we are God, the one, the savior, the center of the universe, the purpose of history. We are also so focused about thinking about what we are and what we hope to become that we neglect to give primary attention to what we are not. But it is not enough just to give, to live in awareness of our notness, but to confess it freely. We should be quick to make it known that we are not God. Indeed, it would be blasphemous to allow others to treat us as if we were. The disciples were quick to rebuke others who thought of them as God. John does not say, this is who I am. This is my important role. I am a key prophet. He begins with what he is not. I am not the Christ. I am not God. I am a creature, not the creator. A servant, not the savior. I am not in control of the universe. I was not there when its foundations were laid. The world is not all about me. It is not my story. It is his. How liberating is this great truth. The impossible is not demanded of me. How wonderful though that I get to play a part in his great story. Do you need to make that kind of confession today? And here's the thing that one commentator I wrote, and I love this thought, said that John's I am nots make room for Jesus' I ams. Isn't that profound? Jesus will come and he'll say, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And by us saying, by you saying, I am not The Messiah, you're making room for Jesus to be all of those things, for you to encounter and experience the fullness of who God is and what He's like. That's the first point. I am not. The second point is in the words of Scripture, John replies. Having gone through these, I am not, I am not the Messiah, I am not Elijah, I am not a prophet like Moses. He then starts to explain who he is. And he's replying in the words of scripture. He's saying in the words of the prophet Isaiah verse 23. Now many people today I think define themselves externally by what's going on around them, by what other people are saying about them, by what uh, culture around them or they've grown up in values and thinks is significant. And it says that's important. So they try and live out their identity in fulfillment of that. So there's external ways to find your identity. And then there's an internal way to find your identity today, which I think is probably more common than external, And it's to look inside yourself. It's about how you feel your intuition, your sort of sense and emotions that rule and shape what you're thinking. That that's, uh, that's how I'm going to live out my identity. Uh, that's how I'm going to discover who I am and, and, and how I'm going to live life. What's really interesting is actually that that searching inside yourself has been externally created in a way. So they're not really two things. It's that the external people out there have said the best way to find your identity is by looking inside yourself. So those who think like I am rebelling against the external people who say look inside yourself is kind of like as a new way to find your identity. You're actually living out what they've told you to do, ironically, Um, if you followed all of that. (laughs) Let me try and illustrate some of this to you by showing you the more common way that this is done, using Disney films. Disney films, um, kind of really good way to find out what's going on in popular culture. So Moana, great example. Historically, she would have found her identity through her parents and what her parents wanted for her and her island. And they want her to stay on the island, to grow up, to become the chief. That's what matters. That's what's important. That's how you'll discover your sense of meaning and purpose by living to that identity. So that's an externally given identity that she's being told to take on. Do you see that? Only but she feels inside herself this call to the water, to go beyond the reef, to the horizon, that there's something more aided on a little bit like her crazy grandmother Mother, I know, I admit, if you've seen the film. But there is this sense that she's looking inside herself. Do you see that? And that's ultimately what the film reinforces. It's basically saying, don't go by what other people will externally impose upon you. Look inside yourself and that will be right. And also that will help all those people who are stuck living in this externally determined world get free and liberated. That's what happens in the film. That's the plot line. So you can start to see that's what people—that's we're being fed all the time. Look inside yourself. How do you feel about that? You know? <laughs> Find your true self. Search for the hero inside yourself. All this kind of stuff. That, you kind of know that. You've got to be aware of that. Here's the issue. If you look outside yourself, and the reason why it's been criticized is because people externally can get things wrong. And then they're imposing something on you and we don't like that. They don't like that authority that you'd have something over me. So we've resisted that. And so there is something wrong about that. It's dangerous. People can get it wrong. And you're submitting to something that's not correct. But equally, you can get it wrong if you look inside yourself. Because it's just you, right? There's no one else to validate whether you've got it right. And that determination can be crushing. crushing. Overwhelming that you've got to have this sense of identity that you've got to make for yourself that's got to be strong enough to resist any other identity that others might say, No, you're more like that or you're like that. No, it's like, No, this is what I feel. Constantly, like, Ah, but how do I know? I don't know, but I can't validate it with what somebody else says because then it'll be externally imposed. It's just, it's awful. (laughs) You can't look out primarily, you can't look in. So, of course, you look up. To God, to one beyond us, above and outside of human limitation and restriction. And where do we find that? Of course, we find God in the scriptures and what he says about us to be true. That then resonates inside and then gives us power and strength to live out. One of the best places to go would be Ephesians chapter one. For a Christian, this is it that you are loved, restored, healed, forgiven through faith in Jesus, adopted into his family. These are the great truths we should be rehearsing all the time, constantly, because they're under threat. So John defines himself by scripture. He goes to Isaiah chapter 40. And a key to understanding the whole of John's gospel is that it is underlaid particularly by this Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. Either directly or indirectly, he is always referring to Isaiah or one of the other Old Testament prophets. In Isaiah chapter 40, he's saying, I am this voice that's being described. I am the one who's come to prepare the way for the Lord, to make straight paths for him, for his glory is going to come. I'm going to help make a highway for the arrival of God himself amongst us. Isaiah chapter 40 is the turning point, Hinn's chapter of the entire 66 book of Isaiah. Slightly mystically numbered because the numbers and the chapter divisions and all of that, that, they're not part of the inspired word of God. But it's slightly interesting that the first 39 chapters of Isaiah seem to mirror the first 39 books of the Bible. That's the whole of the Old Testament and have a focus on judgment. And then chapter 40 comes and it's about comfort, comfort, hope. And it turns the tide on what comes for the rest of Isaiah's prophecy. Those 27 chapters that remain are much more hopeful. Isaiah is basically saying, I am this guy who's come at the hinge of history to announce and prepare the way for the arrival of God himself to come amongst us. It's an amazingly bold claim. He's saying, this is who I am. He's saying he's the voice to make way for the word to come. He's saying, "Like I'm a lamp for the light of God to come. He's saying, I'm a friend of the bridegroom. Or, like The best man for the bridegroom is Jesus who's going to come. He's basically saying, my identity is entirely based on him. It's about him. I find my sense of worth, my calling, my significance, my meaning. All of that is derived from who is Jesus. Jesus is God. And if he's God, then this is what it means about me. I'm the voice for him. Wow, that's really significant. You want to know who you are means you've got to know who Jesus is. Because who Jesus is shapes everything about who you are. Because if he's your creator, if he's your maker, if he's your savior, if he's the Lord of all history, then you better make sure you know who he is. Otherwise, you'll never truly know who you are. Which leads us to the final point. Behold. John says, look, or more literally, behold the Lamb of God, verse 29. As I introduce this final point, point number three, um, I'd like to say that I really enjoy those Specsaver adverts should have gone to Specsavers have you seen some of those? <laughs> um, you know the ones I'm talking about I really like the one with the vet and there's this sort of few seconds basically it, it's a vet um, if you don't know what Specsavers is it's, it's, um, they sell glasses um, and so he's a vet and he's panicking um, he's got this sort of animal in front of him and he's going like no poles, cat, no poles, no poles, quick, help, get this, get this, like that. And his assistant's kind of looking at him like, what is wrong with you? She walks over to this like, animal, basically, and then puts it up on her head. And it turns out it's her hat, it's a fur hat. It's not a dead animal. <laughs> and then it says, should have gone to Specsavers. It's like that, it's a great moment of like, blindness, the dangers of it. I had a moment, I sort of should have gone to Specsavers moment. Um, a few years back, I was at the swimming pool locally here for the first time. And I was coming out of the swimming pool, and I, I, I wear—I normally wear glasses. I didn't have them on at this point, point. Um, and I'm—I'm I'm basically blind. I can't really see in front of me like that. I walked into the ladies' changing rooms <laughs> before there's like shrieks of noise to correct me. I'm like, oh, it was okay because I can't actually see. I'd have to get be really—I have to get really close to you to actually see you. That would be very, very odd um, indeed. But the point I'm trying to make is that there's a blindness. There's a blindness, isn't there? There's a blindness in our world and there's a blindness spiritually. And that the world, the flesh and the devil are always coming at you to obscure your vision of Jesus. To stop you from really seeing who he is and what he's like. You know, that to fog up the spiritual lenses of your glasses. So you can't quite see the fullness of who he is. And so our job is to be vigilant and to keep wiping away, to keep wiping away with the word, with truth, with prayer, with fellowship with other Christians, that our vision would be 2020 of who Jesus is and his heart for us. And so the Johns come with, with three things. The two Johns have three things to say together to us, to witness to us about Jesus in this final point. The first of those things is he is the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now we can't know for certain what was going on in John the Baptist's mind when he said that. But I'm almost certain that he must have had something of the Exodus story in mind. Exodus chapter 12, he would have been... Looking back to this moment in biblical history, when God spoke and he sacrificed, he said, you must sacrifice this lamb, all of you, and paint its blood over the door frames of your houses so that the judgment of God would pass over you in the story of the people of God being set free from oppression and tyranny under Pharaoh in Egypt and coming out into the promised land. The other thing I'm almost certain he would have had in mind would have been Isaiah chapter 53, because he's living in Isaiah as he's writing this gospel, that this one who would come, a suffering servant, would be like a lamb led to the slaughter, who would be pierced for our transgressions. Now, we know so much more as we step back in history that this is God coming as the Lamb, the all-powerful, almighty one to sacrifice himself, to pay the penalty for our sins, for your wrongdoings, for your pride, frankly, in trying to be God in your life, for giving in to that temptation of Satan to be like God. I want to be God. I want to be in control. I want to be at the center of everything. I want to be the hero of the story. But it's a pride. He comes to pay the penalty for that, to take away the guilt of that, to take away the shame of that, to set us free, to liberate you, to demonstrate and prove that he loves you by dying for you upon the cross. This incredible act of sacrificial love, of freedom and joy. This verse is unmistakably powerful. On the 7th of October, 1857, Charles Haddon Spurgeon preached in the Crystal Palace to 23,654 people. They actually say that there was a waxwork model of him in Madame Tussauds. He was so famous as a preacher in his day. The day before this, though, he did sound checks in this huge auditorium to make sure that his voice would carry and reach every person. But he didn't go, testing, testing, one, two, three. (laughs) Being the man that he is, he boomed out this verse. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world again and again, like that. And then at some point later, he discovered something extraordinary happened in those moments. In one of the galleries, a workman who knew nothing of what was being done heard the words, and they came like a message from heaven to his soul. He was smitten with conviction on account of sin. Put down his tools, went home, and thereafter, a season of spiritual struggling, found peace and life by beholding the Lamb of God. Years after, he told this story to one who visited him on his deathbed. He was saved simply by the hearing of that verse. Wow. That was the first thing. The second thing the Johns want you to know about Jesus. And it's unique to this gospel of the record of how Jesus was baptized and what happened. It's not in Matthew, Mark or Luke, the synoptics, only here in John's gospel. And it says that when the spirit comes on Jesus and he's baptized, the spirit remains on him. And remained on him, says it twice. That's quite extraordinary if you think about biblical history to this point. The spirit has never remained on anyone. Great kings, great prophets, only temporary. Why? Because of their sin. The Spirit remained on Jesus because he was without sin. This is a statement again. Jesus is God. And why did the Spirit remain on him? The Spirit remained on him. Isaiah 61. He's anointed by the Spirit to proclaim good news to the poor. To bind up the broken hearted to set the captives free. The third thing, and it relates to this one I've just mentioned, is that the Johns want you to know that Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This word for baptize, probably better translated, marinade. He wants to soak you with his presence to transform you into his image. It'll say in just a few chapters time, John chapter 3, that Jesus has the ability to give the Spirit without measure, without limit, as an abundance of the giving of the Holy Spirit. And this has come to fulfill prophetically what was spoken of the ministry of the Holy Spirit given through the Son. Isaiah chapter 32. Till the Spirit is poured on us from on high, and the desert becomes a fertile field And the fertile field seems like a forest. Isaiah 44, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. What's the ground of your heart like these days? Is it dry? Is it more like a desert? It'd be understandable if it was, with all that we've been through. Jesus is offering you today the baptism of his spirit that brings life, that transforms all dryness. Supernaturally, life coming, joy coming. Of overflow and awakening. And it comes the moment that you believe, of course, but it keeps coming as you continue to believe. Can you receive this? Yes, of course you can. It says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the world! That's everyone without distinction, without discrimination. Every background, every race, every colour, every creed, every age. You can receive Jesus. You can receive life. This heart transplant, this awakening of joy and power and overflow through the Spirit. It's without distinction, but it's not without exception, though. Because, as we've read earlier in John's Gospel, John's chapter, verses 10 and 11, it says you must receive Him. Because some didn't receive Jesus. They didn't experience this life. They remained barren in the desert place. You have to receive Jesus. You have to believe on his name. You have to abide in him. You have to take the blood of the cross and paint it across the door of your heart and welcome him in, give him access. You have to put your head on his chest. And spend time with him and hear his heart. And as you do that, as you behold the Lamb, you can become the voice. Because you're hearing him. Because you're close to him. Because his heart's touching your heart. And you're being changed. As you're starting to discover how loved you are, how cherished you are by him, you can become a voice for him. And he starts to convict you of sin and... Different aspects of your life and you go, oh, God, forgive me for that. God, forgive me for that. And you discover that the dove of the Spirit starts to remain on you and anoint you with power to do ministry, to impact other people's lives in the same way that Jesus did, that there's an anointing and a closeness because you're near to him. There's nothing barring or, or hindering or grieving your fellowship and your closeness and your intimacy with this awesome God. There's power to change lives. That's what we're about in this season of bless. We're called to prepare the way for Jesus, to be the introductory voice for him to be the word for their life. Who are you? Who are you? If you believe on the name of Jesus, you are, number one, the first type of John, the author of this gospel. You're a beloved disciple you're one of those people who can say i'm a disciple that jesus Jesus loves (laughs) and then the second john you are as well you're a john the baptist a voice called to prepare the way for jesus that people would know him let's pray lord we thank you so much for your goodness to us we thank you that you came to die for us Forgive us for trying to be God. Forgive us this great pride where we think we know better, where we battle and wrestle to be in control, where we step in to do things automatically without even speaking to you first. Lord, we say today that we are not messiahs. We come to make room for you to be God. For you to show up in power, even in this moment right now. Lord, we define ourselves by what you say about us, that through faith in Christ, we are your children. We're adopted. We're saved. We are loved. We are rescued. We are forgiven. We are adored. We have purpose. You have great plans for each one of us and for us collectively. So Lord, we pray, help us to behold you. Help us to fellowship with you. Help us to put our head on your chest. Hear your voice so that we can go into this world and be your voice. And prepare the way for a great coming of your presence into this world.